Good afternoon uh, to everyone joining us in the room uh, and on Zoom. Uh, very uh, welcome to our um, eighth uh, MA 101 lecture. Uh, this is going to be the, uh, the last lecture in the series, uh, but not the least, uh, because next week we will ha have uh, the closing session uh, with our executive director, who is going to uh, give a wrap-up for ME 101 uh, lectures and discuss the implications uh, to Singapore and the wider uh, Southeast Asia. So stay tuned and join us next Thursday. Uh, so last week, we hosted uh, Dr. Hanan Muaybed, who gave us uh, and shed light uh, on the social, economic, um, uh, and also the cultural and re religious transformations uh, in Saudi Arabia, and including the uh, changes in the personal status law uh, that reduce the restrictions on women and limiting the authority of the uh, religious police um, uh, in Saudi Arabia. In today's lecture, uh, we will focus on the religion and political Islam in the Middle East and its impact on the Southeast Asia. We would hope also to learn on how those changes that are taking place in the Middle East uh, will cascade uh, 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 in Southeast Asia and influence the Islamic and cultural practices uh, in this part of the world. So to discuss that and more, I'm very delighted to be joined today by Dr. Norshal Bin Saad, um, who is uh, a senior fellow at the uh, Yusuf Ishaq Institute, is our neighbor institute. Uh, he is the coordinator of the Regional Social uh, Cultural Studies Program, uh, as well as Indonesia uh, Studies Program and Malaysia Studies Program. And a little bit of background of Dr. Uh, Norshal. He uh, received his PhD in 2015 in International Political and Strategic Studies by the Australian National University. Uh, he also received his BA uh, uh, in Political Science and uh, MA in Malay Studies from the National University of Singapore. He was a recipient of the uh, uh, many scholars and awards, uh, including the NUSMA scholar, Ton Deto Sershin Loktan, ISAS MA scholar in 2008, and the MUIS BHD scholar in 2012, and uh, others. Uh, in 2017, uh, <laughs> the MOE Double uh, SRC awarded him a grant to study the Singapore's Islamic Studies graduates. Uh, Dr. Norshal is currently a member of the editorial committee for journal Sojourn. Uh, he also sits as a volunteer on numerous advisory boards, including the chairman of Malay Heritage Foundation. He, his uh, recent book was published only a, a few days ago, maybe two days ago. Uh, titled Trending Islam, Cases from Southeast Asia. Uh, before I give the mic uh, to Dr. Norshal, I would like to remind everyone, uh, those in the room, if you have questions, you can note them down and then we can take them. Uh, you should wait for the microphone. 
uh, those who are online, uh, feel free to post your questions uh, in the chat box. And with that, uh, I give the floor to Dr. Nash. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Aisha, uh, for the very generous, kind introduction. And, uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining this uh, session uh, very late today. Um, maybe I just share my slides before we proceed. Um, uh, so thank you once again to, to the Middle East Institute uh, for this invitation. It's not the first time I've done this. Uh, so immediately when, when I was uh, asked to deliver this uh, lecture, I mean, I won which is a very good initiative. I immediately said yes. Um, as uh, mentioned by uh, Professor Aisha earlier, that uh, my research um, mainly focuses on uh, Southeast Asia. And we are from a neighboring um, institution just across the road. Um, and um, I, I, I look at Southeast Asian Islam very closely. But uh, often when we talk about Southeast Asian Islam, uh, we cannot escape yeah, talking about the developments in the Middle East because Islam is very much closely tied to the Middle East. And uh, as we know, with the evolution changes that's happening in the Middle East, there's always plenty to talk about and how it impacts uh, Southeast Asia. Um, for this particular lecture, uh, I've been asked to share the uh, linkages between the Middle East and Southeast Asian Islam. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy to, to, to do so. Um, there's, of course, a partic some particular questions that have been asked that I should be covering uh, in this lecture. But I thought I want to take this opportunity to address uh, mainly uh, two dominant perceptions uh, about this linkage between Middle East, Islam, and Southeast Asia. There is this dominant perception uh, that has colored academia as well as research interests out there. First, the linkage between Southeast Asia and Islam and, and, and the Middle East centers around the issues of terrorism and radicalism. Uh, and I think this has defined uh, very much the scholarship out there and uh, some form of anxieties as well, uh, particularly developments in the Middle East and how it's impacting uh, 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 Southeast Asian Islam. That's the first uh, concern that we have. Second concern that we normally hear uh, amongst academics, scholars, policymakers, is the fear of deculturalization of Southeast Asia, meaning, you know, uh, the commonly used term is that the Malays, particularly in Southeast Asia, dominantly are Muslims, are losing their cultural identity and becoming Arabized. So this whole deculturalization process is always seen as the Arabization of Southeast Asia or the Arabization of the Malay world. So these are normally the two concerns that we have and we hear uh, amongst policymakers and amongst academics uh, circles. So these are the two questions that I wish to address uh, along the way. So we just bear that in mind as we approach. Uh, so I will address these issues briefly. I understand that this is a 101 and uh, I've uh, written quite a bit about some of these issues. So in areas in which I don't have the time to go in depth, perhaps you may want to to read them. Uh, and of course, uh, and, and we can have that engagement. Uh, and in this presentation, I will also do my best to share not only the contemporary perspective, but we also need to look at the historical perspectives in, other, in order to better understand 
uh, and also to have to do justice to this relationship between Middle East and Southeast Asian Islam. So these are the issues and these are objectives of the lecture uh, that I wish to are quite ambitious within <laughs> within the short period of time uh, given for today's lecture. So I wish to articulate the evolution of religion's place in the Arab world. Uh, again, from a cursory view as a Southeast Asianist from afar, we see how developments are happening in the Middle East. Uh, second objective, to see Southeast Asia regional policies to prevent religious radicalization. And this is actually the question uh, given by colleagues in MEI for me to address this. I will try my best to address this, this part as well. And lastly, to look at the complexity of the Middle East impact on Islam uh, in Southeast Asia. So uh, I will try to tackle these three issues. So uh, I this is a map of uh, the Middle East that we are talking about, we're referring to. Uh, and uh, beyond these boundaries of nation states, uh, there's of course uh, complexities that are underneath them with deep historical uh, ties with, with the lay world. Uh, if you look at the demography, uh, you can see right uh, the different uh, demographic shifts happening in the Middle East. Um, and uh, of course, uh, certain states are more uh, uh, familiar to Southeast Asianists, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, because uh, of religious reasons. And uh, of course, Egypt also has long historical ties with, uh, with Southeast Asia because of educational reasons. So the ties uh, of the Middle East and Southeast Asia are varied. And every single state uh, that is found on, the, on this map you know, have different meanings, yeah? different uh, stories for for uh, Southeast Asianists. Um, so just a brief overview, I think... Uh, my colleagues here in MEI are, of course, the experts and developments in the Middle East, but I'll just touch very briefly on my view on the Middle East. Uh, of course, Middle East, as we know, remains the center of major religions in the world and not Islam. Uh, I think that's that's something that is common knowledge. Uh, but uh, to underline the complexity of the Middle East, you know, we often talk about the geopolitics of the Middle East, and then there's a lot of publications, a lot of books out there that talks about this rivalry between major powers, alliances, U.S. role, you know. But uh, beneath them, there are also intra-Arab rivalries that we need to look at. Uh, but that's also very well known out there uh, historically. Uh, but uh, within the, the states itself, I mean, there are also class dynamics uh, that's happening, and it's also shaping uh, the politics uh, of of uh, Middle East states. Yeah, I'm sure my colleagues here in, in the Middle East Institute would have examined all these issues and would be better uh, in a better position to speak uh, on on these topics. Um, we often have this imagination that uh, authoritarian states uh, are found in the Middle East. Uh, but lately, if you look at the scholarship, we're also looking at civil society's role. I mean, this is not a recent phenomenon if you look at the Middle East. Uh, but lately, particularly after the Arab Spring, um, we are seeing the role of civil society. Uh, and uh, I, I mentioned a few works here, Asaf Bayad looking at Iran, uh, for instance, right? Uh, looking at how civil society is playing uh, a very crucial role in shaping the politics and society. Uh, so that's one, one area that's shaping Middle East. Um, 
Of course, there are many other issues uh, that we can talk about. What's shaping politics in, in the Middle East? So civil society is only one, but uh, succession, political succession is another, another, another dimension that we, we can talk about. But of course, this might have already been touched in the previous lectures. The other issue uh, concerning the Middle East would be uh, what next uh, for petrodollars, particularly in a post-oil uh, scenario for the Middle East, and how this will impact political Islam. Uh, I cited Hamid and McCann's edited volume and look at the different types of political Islam and the complexity. I think sometimes in Southeast Asia, we tend to use the term political Islam very loosely, uh, but they need to look at the different dimensions of political Islam. And as Asaf Bayad mentioned in his book, are we looking at a post-Islamist society? So these are new debates that we are encountering uh, within the academic circles. And lastly, the Middle East, particularly Gulf states, are also playing catching up. And how will this impact the you know, Islamic identity? Um, Mecca, of course, remains, uh, when we talk about Islam, Mecca remains the center of Islam. Uh, but there are also other holy sites uh, in Jordan, Egypt, Iran, Syria, Yemen, and Turkey. Um, so apart from Mecca, now we've changed. So let's talk about the Southeast Asian dimension. Now we're changing class dynamics in Southeast Asia, uh, the view of Islam towards Islam's role in the Middle East will also shift. You know, yes, Makkah will remain a destination for pilgrimage, but you know, middle class in uh, in the Malay world are also looking at other sites, historical sites. You know, because of affluence, you know, they can they can they can travel and they are also looking for. And this will also shape uh, the dynamics between uh, Islam and which also means exposure to other forms of Islamic thought and Islamic ideas. So that's another dimension. Um, the other dimension which is close to my heart is the second point, looking at the role of Islamic education. Uh, I think uh, if you're familiar with some of my recent works, I myself, Dr. Azza Ibrahim, Professor Nur Aishad Rahman, uh, wrote a book about Islamic studies graduates from Singapore um, and, uh, and their learning journeys and experience in the Middle East. So we have published a book called uh, Reaching for the Present. Um, so this book looks at the impact of the Middle East universities on our students, and that's another dimension that's really talked about, the role of education and whether there's a shift. If, if in the past it's always been Al-Azhar University, um, today are we still talking about Al-Azhar University or other alternative uh, sources of education for Southeast Asians? Middle East soft power is another dimension that we want to look at. Uh, so in the past, it used to be petrodollars, funding, uh, certain ideologies, certain ideas in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, but uh, perhaps now we're not looking at those direct impact. How about soft power? You know, We are looking at power in a softer way. That's happening in global geopolitics. Uh, so could Middle East also be playing that role? You know, And how it's impacting Muslim society here in Southeast Asia? And of course, last point I want to make about my brief overview of the Middle East is that Middle East also is undergoing change and evolution. Uh, yes, of course, we can start from the Ottoman Caliphate since the fall of the Ottoman Caliphate. Um, and then also during the colonial period, post-war nationalism, Islam, and, and so on. And uh, I cited uh, Eric Traeger's book, uh, The Arab Fall, as one good, um, good book that looks at Muslim Brotherhood, in particular in Egypt. Uh, and traces its evolution, its rise and fall. Uh, and of course, we can also replicate yeah, that study to other organizations uh, in the Middle East and how it's impacting Southeast Asia. 
So judging from the last three slides and phone, I think, you know, I'm no Middle East expert, but I can sense the complexity before we even talk about its implications on Southeast Asian societies. So yeah, this is mini uh, repetition of my earlier slide, looking at changing Middle East, post-oil Middle East and the Gulf states. How will this impact? So Middle East in the past, I mean, in the recent past, have been obviously been seen as more conservative form of religious values versus secular and, and liberal ideas. So is this changing going forward due to the changes that's happening uh, in the Middle East? And are we seeing a late comeback of globalization and westernization coming to the Middle East? Uh, of course, I show the FIFA World Cup that's organized by the Qatar uh, uh, government. And uh, you see how the success of that. And could it be, yeah? There could be late players in this, but are we seeing that shift that happened in the Malay world earlier, now replicated in the Middle East in the post-oil crisis? So let me begin uh, by looking at some key takeaways of this presentation. Uh, look at it historically. I mean, what I've cited earlier are recent developments in the Middle East and how it can impact Southeast Asia. But the Middle East impact in Southeast Asian Islam has been, uh, you know, for centuries, right? So some of the key takeaways that Middle East has impact has always been neutral to Southeast Asia. Uh, but today, the progressive views from the Middle East are marginal. So that's my first point, how it works. So Middle East should not get all the blame. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, the, the long short of the story, right? So Middle East influence on Malay language and culture is not new. The Malay language will continue to evolve and the vocabulary will continue to expand. Arabization discourse needs more nuancing. So this, in a way, uh, tries to address some of the concerns of our policymakers out here that Malays are now losing their cultural identity and moving towards Arabization. Um, a lot of emphasis has been given to radicalism, particularly post-911, uh, but sometimes we miss the, the elephant in the room, which is to look at how societies in Southeast Asia, if we talk, really talk about Arabization, if this thing really exists, we should look at uh, developments in Southeast Asia since the 1970s and 1980s. I think that is more crucial rather than looking at it as an Arabization discourse because Southeast Asia you know, experiences early wave of this Islamic revivalism, which has an impact on Muslim thinking, Muslim ideas to this very day. Uh, for those of you who watch uh, the old Piramli movies, you know, you're a very famous uh, <laughs> Malay actor here. I mean, you can see a shift and changes in society, the way people dress, the way people behave, what are their demands and what defines Islamic lifestyle. So you see that shift happening and it happened in the 1970s and 1980s. Do I have a short one? Yeah, socio-historical context is very important. We'll talk about uh, Middle East impact in Southeast Asia. Last point, last takeaway is that the theological approach is a dominant approach when we talk about our Middle East impact. We always talk about religious issues, religion, ideas, jurisprudence. We always tend to think about that kind of impact. There is that impact, but we tend to forget that other factors that shape uh, Southeast Asian uh, responses to this Middle East impact, uh, which includes class dynamics, Right? How does the middle class behave in the Malay world vis-a-vis uh, -vis the underclass? And how do they respond differently to Southeast Asia, uh, to, to Middle East impact? Right? Uh, new media is uh, another issue that we rarely talk about. You know? How does the Middle East impact? Does the Middle East impact Malays here in Southeast Asia? 
more in the past or, uh, or currently? Now, given the new media age, or could it be somebody from the US who talks about Islam, which I think our middle class Malays, more educated Malays, uh, associate with? So are we looking at the different dynamics at play here, looking at this middle uh, new, new, new media impact? So alternative discourse. I will skip the slides uh, very quickly. Uh, uh, this basically shows an overview of the kinds of the, the old past impact of Southeast Asian, uh, of the Middle East towards Southeast Asia. Uh, majority of, um, of Muslims here uh, are Sunnis. They are the Shafi'i schools of thought. Uh, one unique characteristics of Southeast Asian Islam is that it's very much tied to the royal courts because Islam came to a, a feudal society, so very uh, very hierarchical. Uh, but there was, of course, impact of uh, the early interactions of Middle East. You know, Islam came to this region uh, in and 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 inter interface with a, a feudal society. But there was another wave which happened in the 18th and 19th century. Um, another impact of the Middle East, but this one of, of a more modernist revivalist type. So you see, the, the different waves of impact shaping Southeast Asia is constantly changing. And then, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1970s, uh, Islamic revivalism came to this part of the world and introduced new brands of Islam. Yeah? We're talking about Muslim Brotherhood. We're talking about the rise of Salafism, Wahhabism ideology, of course, in response to geopolitical uh, uh, tensions that's happening out there. Uh, Iranian Vilayat the Faqih also became um, uh, uh, a discourse that shapes the, the Malay world and global Sufism, particularly post uh, 911. So this is, again shows the different waves and different levels of interaction uh, that we see between Middle East and Southeast Asia. Uh, these few slides, I think I will skip, but it's just basically trying to tell you that you know different Malay uh, uh, societies, Indonesia, uh, Malay Javanese societies, largely Muslim societies, and even within Southeast Asia itself, the different states that, that host um, uh, a huge number of, 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 of Muslims, there are, of course, diverse institutions, diverse, diverse orientations. And, of course, this has got to, to uh, come back to the way Islam uh, was promoted, the way uh, Islam uh, came to this region, and, of course, the policies adopted uh, by uh, the, the governments of the day. So Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, but generally not an Islamic state in the Iranian sense. So that's very interesting. Uh, Malaysia, also dominant uh, Muslim uh, in, uh, 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 nation, uh, but different from Indonesia, it clearly states that Islam is the religion of the federation. And Islam in Indonesia is closely tied to the royal courts. So today, the Malay monarchs or the Malay rulers continue to become the heads of Islam and Malay culture. Singapore, um, a minority Muslim uh, community, but in terms of its cultural practices and Islamic orientations, very close to uh, what we see in Malaysia. Uh, even though uh, Malays are, and Muslims are minorities here, it's recognized as one of the religions and there are institutions uh, made available to look into the needs of Malay society through the administration of the Muslim Law Act. Um, recently, of course, I, I also considered Brunei into my, my, my analysis. Uh, Brunei is, is, is also quite interesting. It remains a monarchy, absolute monarchy, um, all rich country, 
uh, Shafi'i school of thought, and uh, it adopts the the quite similar to Malaysia in a way this role this this nexus uh, this connection between uh, Melayu Islam and Braja. It means the role of the monarchy is very important in defining Islam. And recently, of course, they also adopted this negara zikir, you know, the, the very sophistic kind of, of, of discourses that shapes the kind of religious orientations uh, the country is, is adopting. Uh, this slide basically is, is part of the reading list. So like a good professor, <laughs> you know, we, we always, uh, sometimes we have no time to, to look at the, some of these areas. We just uh, uh, introduce some readings. So you, if you wish to look at how Islam came to this region, you may refer to Caesar Adib Mahul, Theories, uh, Introduction and Expansion of Islam in Southeast Asia. Uh, another important read that looks at the very early interactions between um, uh, Southeast Asianists and the Middle East, you may want to read Azumardi Azwa's book. Now you see, what I'm trying to show, even from the different books and literature itself, right? you see the different kinds of issues raised right? look, when you look at interactions between the Middle East and, and, and Southeast Asia. The earlier one looks at how Islam came to this region and how Islam brought by the Hadramis in particular interfaced with feudal society. You know, and hence the, the kinds of questions is that, oh, how, what's the role of mysticism? You know, what's the role of Islamic laws during that point of time in the context of Ecuadorian society? But you look at Azuma the Azra's focus, if you move to the 17th and 18th century, you look at how uh, Southeast Asian uh, religious elites, you know, personalities go to the Middle East to reform the society, different kinds. See, So the impact itself could could. There are many different kinds of impact. It could be, uh, some say, conservative impact, but you no, know, Middle East could be a source of progressivism in particular periods and phase of society. So it's always evolving and changing. Yeah. So if you look at the the, the interaction at that point of time, it's Islam when it came to Southeast Asia is generally neutral towards Malay culture. It respects Malay culture, and you can see that how Islam enriches the vocabulary of the Malay language. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the interesting thing about Malay language is that it, it's, it's constantly, continuously evolving. Right? It, looks, it takes Sanskrit words, it takes Arabic words, and of course, it enrich, and today it's, it's still growing. It takes English words. So it, the, the vocabulary of the Malay language is still uh, increasing. But just want to show that you know, the impact of Islam uh, in this part of the world enriches yeah, the, uh, the Malay language. It enriches uh, architecture thinking uh, in terms of uh, you know, arts, in terms of what kinds of you know, arts. Uh, so I think Islam's impact, the Middle East impact, interacted with local, and then it produces new original ideas, which is very interesting uh, in terms of, of this, this level of, of, of interactions. Yeah. So floral design is a very key, you know element of Islam bring to the Southeast Asia and, and the Malays added that, that form of color as well to, to many of these art forms and it created the repackages into something that's that's very uh, uh, original. Again, coming back to my earlier point, now if, we, if people talk about Middle East as a source of conservatism, <laughs> but in the past people people go to the Middle East you know, to bring back modernist ideas. One of them is, is Said Sheikh uh, Al-Hadi, a thinker in the uh, earlier 20th century. Um, very much influenced by Sheikh Muhammad Abdul, stinking in, in Egypt, and uh, bring back these ideas, you know, trying to modernize society. So he published this book, very controversial book, recently reprinted. So this is a new cover. 
agama Islam dan akal, Islam and rationalism. Another example is uh, the founder of Muhammadiyah. Uh, for those of you who don't have time to read, uh, you can watch this movie on Netflix. <laughs> so it's available. Uh, um, looking at how you know a figure from from Jakarta uh, did his pilgrimage, stayed for a while in in modern day Saudi Arabia, come back bringing uh, reforms. So Saudi Arabia was a source of reforms at <laughs> point of time. So challenges a more traditionalist uh, kind of of ulama. Sorry, I have to go through very fast because I think is I think there, there's plenty uh, to cover. Um, another interesting work that uh, to sum up, but this is written in Malay, that looks at the relationship between Islam and uh, you know and Malay culture and culture in the general sense is that Islam generally, when it came to this part of the world, is very neutral. It actually uh, allows culture to flourish. Uh, it allows Malays to continue practicing Malay culture. Of course, it changes the monotheism part, the thinking part, uh, the belief, but it generally respects Malay culture. And my point is this, you know, we see a change in the 70s and 80s where there is a group that suddenly comes in and says that we need to go back and be like the Middle East. This is another phase in this interaction between Middle East and the Malay world, this is what we call the revivalist pace. And uh, trying to, to reconstruct Malay uh, society to go back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. You know? So it's the, another phase of interactions between uh, Middle East and, and Malay world. And here we go. We talk about the Middle East period. Uh, there are many factors that triggered this global wave of uh, Islamic resurgence. Uh, of course, due to geopolitical reasons, fall of Ottomans, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, Soviet Union. This was during the Cold War period, you know, Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but there was one particular uh, episode right, that uh, happened in the Middle East that also somehow triggered that form of confidence amongst the, the Malays Globe, uh, the Malays uh, Muslims in this region, as well as the Muslims worldwide, about the need to return to Islam. Uh, one of it is, of course, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, of course, more civil society kind of, of, of movement. Uh, the Iranian revolution is so significant, even though it's a Shia kind of country. Malaysia are Sunnis, but uh, at that point of time, in 1979, uh, there are many Malays who are interested to, to study the revolution. You know why? Because they feel that, oh, if this uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in his late 70s, 80s, you know, can lead this revolution, there must be something that we can learn from, from Ayatollah Khomeini. And hence, you see, this impacted Malay, Malay society. It impacted Malay political parties in Malaysia, for instance. So they were beginning to reorientate themselves, Kepimpinan uh, Ulama, for instance, you know, the leadership of the Ulama. Where did this come from? With Ayatollah <laughs> So. So, okay, it is a history, huh? but the political revolution we must study. We must adopt and we can soon make it soon. You know? So, the Middle East changed. And hence, during this period, there was a growing uh, group of people saying, we need to go back to Islam. But they do not differentiate Islam with Middle East. <laughs> you know? And hence, this was the phase where uh, there's a change in terms of the identity of, of the Malays back then. This is an example. Uh, this is the famous Darul Al-Arqam movement in 1980s. And we people dress, uh, the kinds of ideas being promoted as the Islamic 
alternative uh, uh, to the secular governments of the day. Uh, somehow, there was this contestation between uh, the two groups. And look at the way they, they tried to adopt the dressing and then trying to, to, to say that this is the alternative Islamic way, but it's borrowing from, from the Middle East. Right? The niqab, for instance, is something foreign to the Malay world. In fact, the hijab at one point of time was very foreign to the Malay world, right? But these changes happened in the, the, the 70s and the 80s. I'll go very quickly, right, to the more contemporary in the last 10 minutes or so. So when we talk about the Middle East impact today, uh, we must be very careful, you know. Uh, of course, in the past, we see different phases have different impacts. But if we talk about the Middle East today, you know, we have to ask this question. Which Middle East country, which ideology, which organization? You see, is it Salafi Wahhabism? Is it Muslim Brotherhood? Is it Wilaya Ifaqi? Is it Neo Sufism? Second point, we also need to look at the local actors, you know, and how they respond. See? So, so this is a variety of interactions that we are looking at here. Third point, the significance of Islamic education in the Middle East. Uh, but now we're looking at social media and online influences. You know, how is this changing society? And last point, changing uh, political uh, social landscape in the Middle East. So in the past, the fear is that, you know, you, you go to Saudi Arabia, you come back with a different kind of orientation. Let me be blunt that, that you know, people worry that, you know, become Salafis and Wahhabis, you know. But is that the case today? You know, uh, with, with these new developments that's happening in, in the Middle East, right? So, the role of the ulama versus intellectuals are also changing, not only within uh, the Middle East, you know, there's always this contestation, but suddenly because of globalization, because of the new media space, intellectuals who may not have a place in the Middle East have now moved to, to the Western, to the West. I think I will elaborate some of this later. And they begin this engagements across. Uh, across the globe, and and, and uh, it's it's played out in front of the of the global audience, you know. So who, who are you to decide that this is this is one particular impact and one particular discourse that's affecting uh, the the label? Let me just go through quickly some of the concerns and impact. Right, of course, uh, to address the question of radicalism, uh, I think I'm sure we all know that you know radical. Uh, after nine one one, Southeast Asia also became the hotbed of uh, radical ideas. Uh, so Al Qaeda became a uh, major organization that's under the spotlight in the global war on terror. But in Southeast Asia, two particular organizations, the Jamaa Islamiyah, is, is one of the biggest and impactful, uh, responsible for many of the terrorist attacks, uh, Bali bombing, for instance, in two thousand two. And a more recent uh, case would be the ISIS threat, the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and, and Syria, which has also impacted uh, how uh, states in Southeast Asia dealt with this. There's a, there's a lot of factors that shape uh, the rise of terrorism. So Middle East, of course, played a role in terms of where, where it, it triggered. But some of these battles were really brought to, to Southeast Asia. And the Southeast Asian governments had to tackle it. So it's, it's, it's international, transnational versus uh, the local kinds of, 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 of uh, engagements. So these are some of the headlines that we, we, we saw and how governments tackle it. Um, I must say that uh, to sum up, right, governments tackle it in two ways. right, And it cannot be one way. One, of course, is to use uh, hard power, 
through laws. So Singapore used the uh, Internal Security Act. But I wanted to highlight more on the soft power approaches, right? Uh, where this is, of course, the Singapore's context, where I think there's an engagement. It's quite unique, right? uh, this. And when I visited the Middle East recently, of course, there are also uh, uh, new initiatives that tries to also look at uh, tackling radicalism in this way as well, using soft power, using um, engagements, interreligious dialogues. And interestingly, if you were talking about the Middle East impact, if any, on this is that the tariqah or the Sufi circles become very active in promoting this kind of moderate Islam. Uh, and we see Sufi leaders coming forefront you know, to become the spokesperson for a moderate uh, voice of Islam. And in Singapore, of course, there are many other uh, initiatives um, like the, uh, this, this whole discourse of moderation in Islam and the creation of the Singapore Muslim identity to oppose right, radical ideas. But what's interesting, why Sufi groups and why tariqah groups? Who is the opponent of uh, the Sufi groups? Mainly the Salafis. <laughs> the Salafis and the Wahhabis. Right? They're seen as the opponent of the Sufi groups. And, and hence, there is this whole debate, you know, that actually uh, Wahhabism and Salafism uh, created that ideological platform for terrorism and radicalism. And hence, to oppose it, we need the softer and then it's the Salafism and and as it is Sufism and, 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 and Tariqah. So of course, we can, we can discuss this a bit more, but that was the, the thinking behind uh, the emergence of this uh, Sufis, Sufi groups. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, uh, looking at the role of how Islamic parties, so earlier we talked about uh, the impact of Middle East and radicalism. There are also other impacts such as politics, how politics changed uh, in the 1980s, right? And political parties became championing for laws that are seen as Islamic and Sharia. Actually, I was reading very interestingly last night. Right? Actually, in the Middle East too, during the same period, right, uh, there were also this push for greater Sharia, greater Islamization uh, in the aspect of legal and even uh, educational institutions. So it was quite parallel at that point of time. So the, again, I haven't had a chance to, to, to go deeper into that, but it was the same period, you know, the 80s, you know, uh, and this is this is already happening uh, in, 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 in the Malay world. But not all of this evolution of political parties, you know, changed because of the Middle East. So if you go to Indonesia, uh, most of these parties emerge due to uh, local uh, uh, issues, you know? particularly the democratization in Indonesia led to the springing of new parties. And not all of these are very much Middle East uh, influence on some of these organizations. If you compare his Tahrir movement, which was banned in 2017 in uh, in, 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 in in Indonesia, uh, became part of this larger picture, uh, inspired uh, by, by by what happens in in the Middle East, uh, was of course banned. Uh, but there are others that are um, that spring up because of. Uh, the, uh, democratization that's ongoing in, in Indonesia, for instance. So there, there's this combination of Middle East, but we should not discount right the influence of the uh, local local factors as well. Uh, some of this, uh, another impact that, that I wish to look at was, of course, the impact of education. Right. Uh, sometimes we look at how the two ways of of Middle East impact in education. One is curriculum. So a lot of the Islamic studies try to refashion itself to uh, Middle Eastern universities. So that's one way. 
Another impact that's generally overlooked is the formation of different organizations and campus movements. There's this interesting work by Dr. Yon Mahmoudi, who had a chapter in my uh, one of my edited volumes, Islam in Southeast Asia, that looks at the different groups competing amongst themselves in Indonesian campuses. The Shia movements, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbu Tahrir, Salafi movement, the Hizmet movement, all competing and have their own uh, patrons and, 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 and followers uh, in, in campuses. So that's another interesting dynamic. Uh, lifestyle also will witness significant changes. I think I've mentioned this earlier. We watch Piramli movies and you compare society today. It's a very different society. To what extent are all this impacted by the Middle East or could it be impacted by, by uh, changes in income? Uh, and uh, people begin to, Muslims began to show outwardly their piety. So uh, Chandra Muzaffa in his book talk about the kastika Islam. You know, then there was this period where people tried to show their piety by pasting all this uh, <laughs> interesting uh, Quranic verses to show that they are pious Muslims. So this happened in the 70s and 80s. But today, if you look at, at uh, uh, the impact of the Middle East, if any, you look at the changing lifestyles, you know, of what is pure Islam, what is tainted Islam. Uh, I think there are concerns about Malays now dressing Arabic. Uh, uh, practicing Malay, uh, Arabic culture, using Arabic words. So is this a cause of concern? right? But this is a changing lifestyle that we are witnessing uh, in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, this map basically shows the travel patterns of Muslims around the world. It shows uh, the changing nature of the middle class. And look, Middle East remains a very important uh, 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 destination for many Malays. Uh, and in fact, Muslims globally. And the, the next group uh, uh, of, of, of place you know, that, that is popular amongst Muslim travelers is actually Southeast Asia. <laughs> okay, So Middle East and Southeast Asia are popular destinations for, for Muslim travelers. All right, just very quickly, just uh, as, as a form of conclusion, uh, just to confuse matters a little bit, uh, um, we talk about Middle East impact. Sometimes we... Right now, we tend to think of conservatism, right? Conservatism impact and, and how we, people are using Malay culture. Um, there are many Middle East influences that are also still promoting uh, progressive views. Uh, one particular person I wish to highlight is Habib Hassan Alatas, right? Uh, the Imam Masjid Alawi, famous for um, promoting interfaith work. Uh, there is also a culture of translation of uh, some of Middle Eastern works into Southeast Asia. So in Indonesia, it's very strong. Uh, in particular, some of the works that you think would form as a very progressive Muslim type of, of, of Middle Eastern thinkers are being translated. Hassan Hanafi, Muhammad Shatud, Al-Jamiri. So there are groups that are actually looking to the Middle East for progressive views. But, you know, the Middle East itself is undergoing change. Right, and there's this ideological competition right now that we are seeing between Saudi Arabia and UAE versus Qatar. So, if we talk about the 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 this book, particular book, right, David Warren, right, uh, he looks at the different rivals in the Gulf. This is Al Qardawi brand of you know of Islam versus the Bin Bayah brand of Islam today, which is quite interesting dynamics. And you know that Yusuf Qardawi has passed on, and whether uh, Bin Bayah is now uh, being seen as a very important spiritual figure for, for uh, uh, Southeast Asia. So this is a, you can expect this quote, of course, but uh, this is 
Yusuf Kardawi, he passed on. Uh, at one point in time, I, I remember writing this article in the New Mandala, you know, who is actually influencing Malaysian elections? Because a lot of Malaysian politicians at that point of time look up to Kardawi as a source of, you know, spiritual guidance. You know? I think this source is a global mufti kind of, of idea. But uh, since he has passed on, it seems that he has been overtaken by Bin Baya. So this is an example of, uh, I took this from uh, his website. Uh, this is the vice president of, of Indonesia meeting Bin Baya. And uh, he was named as Tokoh Mal Hijrah in Malaysia. Uh, so again, you see, uh, you see changing times, uh, how uh, earlier we talked about rivals in the Gulf, but today, see how Malay society is also switching, right, to do, and responding differently to the soft power. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's an award. Huh? Um, it's an award to acknowledge uh, a key Muslim personality. Nobody is locally, but Bin Baya is a, is, is a foreigner to get, to get it. Um, yeah, I think um, changing Middle East is, I think, just to reiterate some points. Um, I mean, I've been to Mecca a few times uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, in fact, uh, I was there for the first time in two, 2003. Uh, for religious reasons, yeah. uh, and I saw the change. In that point of time, we don't even have internet access. You know, it's very difficult to do work. <laughs> that point of time, uh, um, and um, you can't. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, walking at the uh, the, the Grand Mosque. Uh, they are very uh, reluctant to if you take photos of, of, of you know important sites or even take videos. You know, but today, the, so societies have changed. And interestingly, you know, I, I've been there recently, as, as recent as uh, last November. In the past, you know, when you when you pass the customs and immigration, it's only males, right? But today you see the immigration counters, all men by females. Uh, so you see this change uh, happening in the Middle East. And of course, it will change more. Of course, concerts in Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar World Cup, and these are some of the issues of changes that we need to grapple with. Uh, and this basically sums up uh, the kinds of change uh, and, and how the religious establishment in the Middle East will respond to this will also have an impact uh, in, in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Uh, I will end with this uh, point. Um, we talk about Middle East impact. Uh, we're not only talking about focusing on people living in the Middle East, but you know, because of movement, travels, uh, there's these contestations for a long time between the ulama class and the intellectuals. Uh, I recently read this book, uh, books, in fact, by Khalid Abu Fadil, very well-known scholar on Islamic law, basically. Very, very critical. Very, very critical of developments. And in fact, these this sermons are, of course, available online, but he, he, this was republished as, as books. It just shows you Right, the kinds of dynamics and changes that's happening. And people in Southeast Asia are also reading these books. So on the one hand, we have people like Bin Baya uh, and, and Hamza Yusuf. But on the other hand, we also have groups you know, that are uh, closely following uh, thinkers, the, the so-called progressive thinkers right, uh, from the Middle East. Uh, and, and all these are played out. And how will this impact Southeast Asia? So the topics are inequality, gender rights, and legal reforms, for instance, are being uh, mentioned in this, in this sermons, right? Which just shows that the complexity of this relationship between uh, Middle East and, and Southeast Asian stuff. Right, so 
just to sum up conclusion, uh, I mentioned six points here. I think we need to rethink this whole Arabization discourse as the main cause of conservatism. We also need to look at the local factors. Uh, we need to understand the socio-historical processes in Southeast Asia, the external and the local. Uh, we need, if we're looking at the, the Malay world, we need to understand the revivalism, Islamic revivalism that happened in the 70s and 80s and how it shapes the orientation. Fourth point, terrorism is a concern. And I hope I've responded to the, the request to look at how people have handled this uh, here. But there are also non-violent aspects of political Islam that's rarely looked on. Um, another area of concern is, of course, religious education in the Middle East. Uh, but that is also changing. But what about the role of social media, you know, and people's access? People can choose now, you know, which Middle East scholars, or maybe they don't even need Middle East scholars, you know, to, to guide them on Islamic matters. Especially when English is now used as the, the language to study religion. It's also changing, yeah, in, 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 in the Malay world. It used to be Malay, right? They study religion using Malay, but now they study English. And hence access to Hamza Yusuf, Mufti Meng, you know. So these are the figures, you know, that are shaping the religious life. And uh, progressives have more space in Indonesia. You look at Indonesia, it's more vibrant in terms of translation culture and most of this uh, progressive thinkers from the Middle East works have been. But uh, Malaysia and Singapore, I think uh, the space of this translation and engagement is still limited when compared to Indonesia. But I think it will change, right, given, again, uh, the use of social media to understand religious discourses. Uh, sorry to to just go a bit over time, but I, I hope I've covered <laughs> what, what, is, what, what is expected and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Marshall, for a very insightful presentation and enlightening us on the, the social, uh, so Islamic and cultural and political interactions between Southeast Asia and the Middle East and showing us how complex the relationship between the two is. Um, now uh, uh, I will open the floor for the questions, uh, but I will take the privilege as a moderator yeah. to ask you a question. Uh, so you highlighted on the influence of the Middle East uh, uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, life, not only the religious practice, but also the lifestyle, um, and as well as uh, the cultural and the art. Uh, in your new book, the title uh, is Trending Islam Cases from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, I wonder if you can uh, uh, give us an insight on what are those trending Islamic ideas in Southeast Asia. And I am really curious to see where did they come from and whether the modernization in the Middle East have played a role. Sounds like a book talk now. <laughs> so I'm ha I'm happy to 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 take that question because uh, uh, again I think it's in line with what I've discussed. Uh, we we look at trending Islam. Basically, it's part of a project which I did at, at my institute. Look at trendsetters of Islam in Southeast Asia. We try to highlight some of the key figures, key personalities uh, that uh, that shape uh, Southeast Asian Islam, mainly in in Malaysia, Indonesia and Singapore. So when we look at trends, we tend to focus on personalities. That's one. Personalities or organizations, right? And if you look at, you know, 
uh, over the years, you know, which organizations, it could be institutions, state-form institutions, or, you know, people are beginning to question whether state-form institutions continue uh, to influence people's uh, thinking, uh, given that, you know, there are alternative uh, uh, organizations that also touch on Islamic. So, so trends could, I see, could be divided into three aspects. One is uh, who are the players? It could be individuals or organizations. Secondly, uh, it could be the medium. What is a trending medium? Uh, my concern is that people are no longer looking at the religious ideas per se. People are looking at how ideas are being transmitted. A very, very communication studies kind of, <laughs> of approach, you know, where the medium is the message, you know. Um, people are more excited if uh, an, an ulama goes on TikTok, for instance. That's to them, wow, uh, the real ulama. So uh, it could be the most conservative ideas being promoted, but as long as it's on TikTok, it's modern. <laughs> so, so that's that's. And the last trend, which I think is the most important trend, which I invite readers and particularly uh, Muslims who read it, you know, to evaluate ideas. Trends could be in the form of discourse. Uh, I think there must be the power to evaluate ideas, you know, how it impacts society. Now, people sometimes, you know, given the, the structures and the, you know, the his historical Islamization that happened in this world, tend to think unquestioningly, you know, this have, have this uh, very blurred divide, you know, Salafism versus Sufism, you know, uh, progressive uh, liberals versus conservative. I actually invite readers to look at the discourse per se and how it impacts Southeast Asian societies because sometimes, you know, it's not as easy as conservative equals to Salafis and Sufis equals to moderates and progressives. You know, because if you look deeper at the impact of some ideas promoted by groups seen as progressive, if you look at the context in Southeast Asia, you also may have negative consequences. So yeah, that's, that's the sum up of the... Uh, why we compile this. So we, it, it, there's a range of topics, uh, mainly on the medium, the use of social media, uh, but also to look at lifestyle trends and also to look at the traditional issues that, that consider trends, like uh, issues pertaining to radicalism. And we look at specific countries in Southeast Asia. Thank you very much. Um, another question that I have also from my side <laughs> so uh, you've mentioned the influence of the social media and also uh, the students and the sc scholars who visit the Middle East, uh, uh, as well as the tourists who go to the Middle East. Um, but one thing that we didn't talk about is the charity networks that uh, exist in Southeast Asia. Uh, does those charity networks play a role in influencing Islam in the Southeast Asia? And has the modernization uh, of Islam uh, in Saudi Arabia from Wahhabism to modern Islam? Sorry, I didn't catch the word charity. Cher You're talking about charities. A charity okay. network, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah. And do those charity promote certain sects uh, of ideology uh, of Islam in Southeast Asia? I mean, I mean, the charities, uh, uh, I mean, we have to go back to, I mean, I, I mentioned it briefly. I mean, petrodollists, there's, there's, there's an era. Uh, of course, you must understand the geopolitical uh, factors that, that shaped and triggered that. Uh, but not only geopolitics, uh, talking about you, during the Cold War period, US versus USSR, uh, 
but uh, we're talking about the Arab ideological rivalry as well, right? Between the Sunni world and the, the Shia. That's that's one dichotomy. Uh, today, if we talk about the Middle East, it's the Muslim Brotherhood versus the non-Muslim Brotherhood kind of dichotomy as well, right? Then that's that's the so-called inter-Arab geopolitical rivalry, for lack of a better term. Uh, and charity should be understood on those aspects. Because as I mentioned earlier, the Iranian revolution, in terms of the ideas, right, uh, it, it gels well with, with the locals uh, here in Southeast Asia wanting to learn and reform society and looking at a model. And they look at the political dimension of Wilayah Ifaki. And uh, at that point of time, of course, um, there was a period where you know, uh, Gulf states and, and, and uh, with, 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 with petrodollars and trying to, of course, counterbalance in the fear that, you know, Southeast Asia may turn Shia, you know, and hence uh, promoting this kind of charities in, in, in this part of the world. So I think it's, if I get your correct, uh, question correctly, I think, um, is charity devoid of ideology, you know? Um, well, I would think that charity is charity, uh, but ideology could be direct or indirect. In terms of its influence. Great, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, I see that I'm having questions from uh, Zoom, uh, but I want to also open the floor for the people in the room if you have any questions before we take the Zoom questions. Hi, my name is Fahima. Um, I One thing, I, I see that you use the term like neutral Islam when it was in, in, in Southeast Asia. I don't know if I got it right, but the, the term neutral Islam when it was in Southeast Asia. So I want a clarification also, what is neutral Islam and and therefore then what is the Islam you would call in Middle East one? Second is um, really on the influence, I think the aspects of what's happening in the middle new Middle East um, with the whole you know normalization of Israel because pan-Islamism was one factor connecting uh, Muslim communities from Arab countries to you know Southeast Asia on you know the outlook or the the policies towards Israel. So now that that is shifting, um, do you think that that the same pan-Islamism concept would, uh, you know, run across religious com Muslim communities in Southeast Asia, like it is happening in in, in the Arab world? So, oh, a question of, of a neutral Islam. When I when I first use it, I'm mainly responding to um, uh, this whole idea of Arabization. You know, Arabization that's happening. You know that. Um, uh, and and the relationship is always that you know uh, Arabic culture is here to subsume uh, Malay culture and those things. But uh, the use of the term neutral Islam is going back to the very philosophy of of religion, which which says that you know Islam is neutral to culture, right? There is no, uh, I mean, and and the Malays in the past understood it. The Malay ulamas in the past they understood it. Right? And hence, they are promoting their culture. And Malay culture, uh, despite Islamization, withstood all this. You know? To the extent, there was another wave of so-called the, the Padri Wars. I think the, the, the term is quite strange, Padri Wars, but it's referring to the purification. It's similar to the Wahhabi movement that happened to the Malay world uh, early on. I would say late 18th century or early 19th century. You know, despite all this cleansing and purification, uh, many aspects of Malay culture were left untouched. <laughs> we just show that the ulama in the past understood the very philosophy of Islam as actually neutral to culture. It was only in the 80s, and this is where I want to differentiate neutral Islam with that revivalist kind of Islam, 
that tries to think that actually it's not, you know. You have to go back to Islam, but in the, in the, in the Arabic form. They study Islam in a, in a, in a form, but it, the, the substance. So that's, that's to, to respond to your first question. Normalization of Israel, how will it pan out? Uh, again, it's pretty early to to see uh, how this will pan out. Uh, of course, you you as you correctly mentioned about this whole idea of pan-Islamism it triggered. Of course, it started off with uh, the the you know the earlier the earlier point which I made about the, the, the all of the Ottoman Caliphate. You know how he created and what next model after the Caliphate. You know, so they created this form of nationalism and trying to to create a new model. Let me let me just share the the reality here today. Is that despite all these announcements that are being made, we do not in Southeast Asia we do not see any major reactions, right? Apart from some leaders that tries to create try to create some form of dialogue. So now we have the OIC, <laughs> this one, but some leaders and this was of course during the time of Tun Dr Mahathir when he was a second time prime minister. He tried to create another platform trying to bring in the Islamic world together. Uh, you know, and of course he met. Uh, you know, he tried to get Turkey on board, uh, um, uh, Pakistan on board, you know, and and other Gulf states. But of course, it didn't really take off at a point of time. But that's the only thing that happened. You know, but talking about the more recent normalization of relations, we don't see any movement at all in Southeast Asia. We don't hear any protests. <laughs> You know, normally, you know, in, in, in Malaysia, Indonesia, of course, there might be small-scale protests, but large-scale protests we don't hear, which is, I think, just to respond to that, the reality is that we do not see, we're not seeing any any signs of that from the ground and from the leadership. Another question? So from uh, Asif. Uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for your presentation. One uh, thing about uh, the, the, the portion where you have mentioned that the radicalism or the, uh, the Islam that has come to Southeast Asia in a similar fashion, the reform is not coming. I think that's kind of a very grim portion. The reform that's happening in the Middle East is not coming in the same proportion. Yeah. Uh, and this is where, where you said that not all blames has to be put on the Middle East, you know. I think it's a kind of a grim situation. Uh, I mean, taking cue from that particular portion, I wanted to ask you, have you looked at this thing that when Islam started coloring the geography or the population, it is irreversible, right? People of different religion, uh, religious domination, uh, you know, were living all across the globe. When Islam spread, wherever it spread, it was irreversible. Like it didn't go into the previous state. Now, similarly, one can say that a portion of radicalism or extremism that was attached to that Islam, wherever it went, in a similar fashion, that is also sort of irreversible, right? I just wanted to, uh, or you to, you know, introspect or maybe uh, give it some thought. Uh, what is this process? Uh, is it really so as I'm thinking or is something different? Because <laughs> if, I, if I get your question correctly, I think... Um... Uh, first and foremost, we need to differentiate between the Islam and uh, the Islamic orientations. I think that's that's fundamental. So when you said that Islam came and is irreversible, yes, I mean it's it when it came to Southeast Asia. I mean we see the growing numbers of Muslims here, and of course became a, a very important uh, site of of Islam, and it also, of course, Indonesia is the most populous country in, in the world. 
so in a way, uh, we don't see a reversal of that trend. Though, if you ask me, uh, Southeast Asian Islam remains in the margins of the greater global discourse of Islam, right? Uh, within the Islamic world, right? For instance, Indonesia is not treated as you know as an equal, you know, when it comes to Islamic discourses. So right now, we're seeing more uh, initiatives uh, undertaken by the Indonesian uh, civil society, even Indonesian state, you know, trying to promote an Indonesian brand of, of Islam through Islamic moderation. So that's one. The other aspect is the orientations differ. You know, even though we don't see the reversal of this Islam, but orientations, you know, different groups with different ideas, again, coming back to different different influences from the Middle East and other parts of the world and the interaction of local factors, uh, colors Islam everywhere in, 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 in the world. Uh, and this is more fluid, if you ask me. Uh, ideas can change quickly. You know, uh, though, um, though some would retain, uh, some could be conservative, some could be more progressive, some could be more open, depends, depending on where they live, depending on where they, they originate. Uh, this is more fluid and it could see reverse or it could see changing, changing uh, uh, patterns. Um, on your point about uh, radical Islam, huh? and that's, that's a very interesting point, if you ask me. Are we talking about perceptions? Of people, you know, associating um, Islam with uh, radicalism, and that—that's a major point. Uh, and we have to study, you know, the impact of Orientalism, for instance, and this dominant perception about about uh, Islam, and it's unchanging and, and static. Whereas, if you look at the different uh, dimensions of it, in terms of if you distinguish Islam and orientations, you can see that there are different different ways and Muslims behave, you know. But unfortunately. Um, this because of what happened uh, recently, this association is is there, and uh, this one is very difficult to 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 reverse. But on that note, it doesn't mean that we, as Muslims, right, we are denying that there is no problem. Of course, radicalism exists. Though, if you ask me, it's a minority, but this minority group could create a major impact because it's dealing with violence. Yeah. But on another dimension. Uh, this is where I think we rarely looked at is the non-violent type of extremism. You know that sometimes you know we talk about migrant societies. You know this is a huge concern. Uh, this happens in Europe. This happens in countries like Western countries like the US and Australia, for instance, where there are migrants, Muslim migrants. Um, sometimes you know it's the adjustments you know, that that is difficult and and for both sides to understand each other. Uh, this probably would have created attention, but if you go down to another level of looking at non-violent type of extremism, you know how how do we respond to changing circumstances of host countries? You know, sometimes we need to understand the thinking and worldview. So this 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 dimension, uh, I feel, is something that is working in progress for many Muslims. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, any other questions from the floor? Okay, um, so I don't have uh, a question. <laughs> Uh, we spoke about uh, how uh, the Islamic practice has changed in Southeast Asia in 1970s, especially when it comes to the hijab and the niqab. But again, now we are seeing uh, changes in the Middle East. Uh, the incident of Mahsa Amini, it's been one year since that incident. And then we saw protests in Iran against the hijab. 
Now, Saudi Arabia is also uh, eliminating restrictions uh, on women. The hijab is not uh, obligatory anymore. Um, so how receptive the Muslims in Southeast Asia to those kind of changes, especially when it comes right. uh, to hijab? And then if you also have an idea which countries are more receptive than others? I wouldn't look at it in terms of countries. Huh? I would prefer to look at it in terms of class dynamics and behaviors. Huh? Uh, those are very interesting points, you know, that uh, we always see things in a cycle, you know, uh, the rise of the use of hijab and now people are questioning it, you know. But uh, we definitely see a great number. Uh, on the one hand, I think we should respect you know, uh, a person's uh, view about hijab if a person feel that it's important to their religious identity and feel that it's Islamic, then I think we should respect that. Uh, vice versa. Uh, and and uh, but I think it's more most important is to look at the the, the historical trends uh, that this this will continue to evolve and and change. And uh, we are living in a particular era where I think uh, there's this particular view about hijab. But we must also look back in in different phases of our uh, you know, ancestors' life, you know that you know, maybe there, there's a, there are different views about this. I mean, to to be respectful about this, it's not only about theology. You know, the, the debate about hijab doesn't only center around theology. I think we have to look at many dynamics, politics, whether there's a law that asks you to do it, that requires to do it, the political dimension, the social dimension. What kinds of religious elites you have? What kinds of ulama do you have? Where are they trained? Family factors? Psychological factors? So I just want to share, this hijab topic can go on for three lectures. <laughs> um, first and foremost, there is this trend in Southeast Asia that talks about hijra. You know what's hijra? I think people know about hijra. It, it's the migration of the prophet from uh, Mecca to Medina. I think we all know about this because of political reasons, political persecution. And, and the need to find a new place. Um, but of course, there's another dimension of hijra which people are talking about is the spiritual dimension, you know, the movement of people, the movement of spirit to the betterment, you know, or purification of the heart. So now we're talking about this kind of hijra. And interestingly, you know, while people think that it's a very good concept, uh, I have nothing against that, you know. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have committed sins in the past, we want to hijra to the better life, very good concept. But now, the concept of hijra, this is mainly among celebrities uh, that we often see. concept of hijra is now tied to hijab. The moment somebody puts on the hijab, I have performed hijra. <laughs> it's no longer talking about the spiritual dimension of it. You know? it's, it's, it's identifying a certain symbol to it. Now, that's a very interesting... I, I don't have comments about it, but it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's a very interesting trend. So that's one story about hijab. And that dimension I want to comment, you know, it's beyond... It's beyond which countries, as, as I mentioned, it's about lifestyle too. You know, the purpose of hijab is what's the purpose of hijab? You know, people rarely debate about this. Uh, today in the Malay world, uh, people are talking about hijab as a as a um, I don't know what was the right term, uh, high end kind of good. You know, we buy expensive hijabs, hundreds of dollars kinds of hijab. You know, so. Um, people never question that dimension. It's become something fashionable. It's become, uh, you know, a good a commodity. And people never evaluate and reevaluate that against 
the very principles of Islam. Never, you know, of of uh, uh, social good, uh, of you know, uh, not wasting <laughs> resources, you know. But you see class dynamics at play here, you know. So hijab has taken uh, the discourse to a, a a new level, if you ask me. So the the the, the debate about hijab is not about theology. It will continuously be changing, but there are also other dimensions that we need to look at. Thank you very much. Um, so there is another question. Uh, it is on the education. Uh, so has the, um, you know, as you rightly mentioned, the Islam is not practiced in a homogeneous way uh, in the different Middle East countries. Actually, we don't, we shouldn't look at the Middle East country as one. Yeah. Different countries, different practices of Islam. Um, so, and now we are seeing the modernization that is taking place in the in different Middle East countries. So, has this modernization influenced the destinations uh, for students who wants to go and study Islam in the Middle East? Quite a big question. No? Um, modernization. Let me talk about the Malay world first, because uh, I remember. One of the first modules I took as an NUS student, a good NUS student in <laughs> 20 years ago, was about modernization and the Malays. There was this very interesting uh, lecture. What is modernization of the Malays? Because there is a group of uh, Malay elites at that point of time that's equating modernization to westernization. The moment you behave like a West, dress like a West, be capitalist, good in business, you're, you're modernized. Whereas if you study modernization in terms of its, uh, its alternative definition, uh, again, we compare it to the Japanese experience, for instance, of modernization. It's about modernization of thought towards rationalism. So that was this, this big debate. Now, when you ask about modernization in the Middle East, um, it triggers this, this first lecture that I had <laughs> 30 years ago. And hence, in one of my slides, if you notice, you know, I mentioned about is Middle East experiencing the late globalization and westernization? Because what we are seeing in the Middle East today is that you use the term modernization, but we are equating it to westernization. Has there been serious thought on reforming the thinking uh, of, of, you know, uh, doing, doing things, you know? Uh, has, it, has it changed, you know? Uh, uh, new, new, or, or are we just imposing... Uh, on the surface, Western culture, having concerts, having World Cup, uh, and said that this is we are modernized uh, with with modern technology. Is that modernization? How about the thinking behind it? The innovation, the freedom to think, uh, to have a proper debate and dialogue. And these are some of the issues, the measurements of modernization. That uh, I don't know. It's 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 still developing. If you if you, if you ask, but how I answer your, your question? Uh, how does okay? The second part of the question is of course, uh, how do we witness uh, this? How do do we respond to this, especially in terms of education? Ah, oh, this is very interesting. It can go two lectures. Uh. <laughs> and is, is this is from a, a recent book? There's this talk now. I compare. I I've been to Al Azhar University because of the research. Honestly, very backward in terms of facilities, lecture theaters, probably 80s, 90s. Nothing has, has changed, traditional way. And hence, they compare with 
with more modern universities in the Middle East. You know, oh, we shouldn't go to Al Azhar University because there are many other universities in the Middle East that offers NUS facilities, <laughs> NUS type facilities. You know, uh, modern lecture theaters, conversed English, uh, good Wi-Fi. You know, that kind of thing. And hence, I I did this comparison and evaluation. What does this mean to Again, coming back to the idea of modernization, what does this mean to the quality of education and quality of thought and quality of discourse? I'm not saying that Lazar promotes that you know intellectualism, you know, of you know of dialogue and discourses of the, the what's happened already developed in the West, but you know, we should not deny Lazar's role, you know, in in educating religious. Uh, Elites on religious sciences because that's what's its particular role. But to associate another modern university because of its modern facilities, but not evaluating the thinking, I think that's very wrong. Because if you look at it, it's the same mode of thinking, but only expressed in modern forms, modern forms or, 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 or contemporary uh, technology. So. So how does how do the Malays uh, respond to that? They prefer to go to this because they look at the surface, you know, and say that you know this is more modern compared to to Al Azhar. But if you look at it comparatively, there's no significant change, no significant differences. Great, thank you very much. Uh, any further questions from the room? And okay, uh, so we don't have more questions. Uh, so with that, I think. Uh, uh, it's time to close this session. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Norshell, for a very insightful presentation and also for your generosity to respond to the questions. Thank you, thank you. And I can see that your book is here. Yes, yeah, I brought my book here. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, if anyone is interested, um, uh, so you can, I don't know. You, you can say? purchase it. Uh, I think it's in uh, major bookstores. You can come to my institute uh, to purchase those books. Okay, amazing. So with that, uh, I close the session today and uh, I invite you all to join us next week for the wrap-up sessions where we close the ME 101 uh, lecture series. Please join us and uh, you will learn more on how all of this development uh, has implications to Singapore. With that, thank you very much again and have a nice evening.